1: Our top story today, shake-up at Credit Suisse, Am being ousted at chief executive. Now, joining us now is Credit Suisse's top shareholder. He is David Harrow of Harris Associates. David, um, we spoke on Monday, and your position was very clear in regards to the chief executive and his battle with the chairman. The CEO now um, resigned after being ousted. Are you still committed to Credit Suisse?
2: Well, we are committed to Credit Suisse because we think that the organization and the strengths of the business go far beyond the uh, weak chairman and the poor decision-making by the Board of Directors. Uh, You know, what's beneath the corporate board, the Board of Directors, is a very solid, and vastly improved company, largely because of the efforts of Mr. Tiam. And so this is why we wanted him to stay. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, earlier in the week that basically Mr. Kim had to repair the damages that were made by the previous managements, which were presided over by the existing chairman who stayed. And this is the dichotomy of the whole situation is that the person who presided over the creation of the mess stayed and the person who cleaned up the mess left. But what has left is a much, much stronger and better company than when Mr. TM came. And it's because of his efforts and his leadership.
1: uh, David Harrow, will you cut your stake in Credit Suisse?
2: You know, we never comment on trading. We, We certainly think the company is less valuable. Uh, than with Mr. T M, but however, we believe the business is still very, very attractive and very attractively priced. And Mr. Gottenstein is a very capable executive. Now, of course, our worry will be that you have this new CEO who's capable and talented, but above him sits a chairman who is less than capable and talented, and a board that seems to Uh, just mimic whatever uh, just follows blindly whatever he says. And as someone who's personally been misled by the chairman, you know, this is going to make it difficult for the new CEO. The new CEO, on the one hand, what's below him, he inherited a very good and improved bank. But above him, you know, he's going to have to deal with, with a board that doesn't function for the purpose of creating value for shareholders. So at this stage, you know, we're happy with our holding and Credit Suisse, and we think it still offers great potential, but this shows the need for, for changes at the board of directors. And I'm, I'm listening to some of the Swiss press, and, and the chairman says, you know, all the shareholders are behind them. You know, there wasn't one shareholder who came out publicly in support of him. So, you know, I, I don't know where he's coming from. And he's going to see that most shareholders, when well, this didn't get put to a vote. This didn't get to put to a vote very shortly. And we're going to see if he survives that vote. But I think for the good of the company, the chairman should step down as well. And so David Harrow,
1: have you been speaking to other shareholders? And are, are you now going to try and remove the chairman or Sroner?
2: We do think that the, uh, yeah, of course, we've been sharing our thoughts, we've been sharing our thoughts with other um, shareholders, and every shareholder I've spoken to uh, seems to, it's, you know, some people don't tell you, and we don't push, we want to know their thoughts, and then, of course people know our position, our position is very, very public, and absolutely we will be uh, voting against uh, Mr. Rohner, and we believe... For the good of the company, other shareholders should vote against Mr. Rohner. And further, if Mr. Rohner really was concerned about the company, and if he really loved the company, he should step down and resign. That's what he should do.
1: Will you take David Harrow legal steps to try and get him removed?
2: We're going to examine all options. We're going to do what it takes to protect our investment and to protect our shareholders. And we think there is great potential in credit sweeps, and we would hate to see it ruined by a chairman who is not on the same page of shareholder value creation as we are.
1: Do you think the new chief executive is on the same page as you in terms of strategy?
2: I I, I have met him, and I think he is on the, the same page Uh, in terms of strategy he has a very good reputation he's done a very good job at the Swiss Universal Bank Um, recall that was almost made public a few years ago and he would have been the CEO of the publicly listed company Um, I I think he's talented I think he is capable Um, but I do fear I do fear the fact that he has to work with the chairman who, you know, just from what I have dealt with um, and what he's done to Mr. Tiam um, you know, right as Mr. Tiam um, has repaired the bank, you know, pushed him out.
1: Go ahead. Now, are you concerned that actually the new chief executive will take the bank in a, in a different direction, that it will be less yeah, I focused
2: on I, I Asia? Don't, I don't believe he will. Yeah, I don't believe he will because he's been part of the team, and I think he could see the success that the bank has had in the direction that Tijan has put the bank in, in the right you know, the direction he's pushed the bank into. So, you know, he's part of the executive board, part of the management team. And I think clearly he's able to see the success of TM strategy. Um, and I do believe he will stick with the strategy. We haven't um, spoken with him since he's become the, the new CEO, but we have met with him you know many times beforehand.
1: Have you spoken to the chairman, Urs Rohner, in, in the last couple of weeks?
2: And Now we've communicated last week. But the last, last I spoke with him was when he denied that he or anyone from the board leaked the story Friday.
1: Will you try and reach out? I mean, is there any insight in getting into into you know how this this has been done? Did you get a call from anyone discussing this before?
2: No, no. They they didn't believe it was important to communicate with their largest shareholder. Evidently.
1: Um, what are you doing, David Herrod? today? Will you fly to Zurich? Will you try and, and speak to the chair? Are you speaking to the chief executive?
2: No, I'm not. Um, I don't plan on flying to Zurich. Uh, what I plan on doing is at some point we have to talk with Mr. Garmstein. And at this stage, you know, there's not a lot that can be done. But, you know, we have to protect our investment. And to protect our investment, and our shareholders means that we have to make sure that there is a board in place looking after the shareholders' interest, the company's interest, the employee's interest. We do not believe Credit Suisse today has a chairman and a board in place that is mindful of their duties to the company and to the owners, to all the stakeholders. We do not believe that Credit Suisse today has a board that is is looking after the stakeholders. And and we think this is a very, very valuable asset. And so, you know, we will take steps to do what we can do. And at this stage, I don't know exactly what we can do. But when we find out what we can do, we will take these steps to make sure that we will will do our uh, fiduciary duty to our shareholders and make sure that there's a board in place that represents the best interests of the stakeholders.
1: Um, David, Herr, I know you have to go, but one final question: Are you looking to replace the chairman, or the or the whole board?
2: Well, that's that is a good question we don't know exactly how the whole board really um, panned out. But I think for for now, for now, the chairman should be replaced. The chairman should be replaced. In fact. As I said, if he really cares about the organization, if he really cared about Credit Suisse, he would step down as chairman. Because this would really bring stability, and it would allow Mr. Donchstein the opportunity for a true, fresh start. But as long as Mr. Rohner is there, there will be doubt and questions on who's going to be the next one to be pushed out. And so I I think the best thing for the organization would be, and I'm surprised that when the board made this change, when the board made this change, you know, they did say he's leaving in 2021. That's not good enough. He's got to leave before that. He shouldn't leave immediately.
1: David Harrow, thank you so much for your time. As always, he is chief investment officer at Harris Associates and, of course, a top Credit Suisse shareholder.
0: John Farrow and Lisa want to do a, a detailed jobs report coverage with Ellen Zentner, but we have to digress now. Is the chief economist of Morgan Stanley, went back to her really seminal market economic work with a fabulous op-ed in the New York Times over the weekend. Uh, millennials aren't spending all their money on avocado toast, actually. Ellen Zentner, congratulations on a sharp essay what is the consumption that you see that was within your essay? Are are, are millennials and the boomers and all of them? Are we still consuming? Uh,
3: yeah, we are, Tom. But I think what I wanted to focus on was um, something, believe it or not, that's not so negative about millennials. Um, you know, we we've, we've loved to to feel bad for them, graduating oh, into a terrible labor market, and and uh, you know, accusing baby boomers of sucking up all of the wealth. Um, in the nation. But, you know, there's there's a very simple policy change here that has been overlooked that is actually helping millennials save more, right? not just spend, but save more than, say, my generation did at their same age. I'm Generation X. And it's as simple as the continued rise of the presence of 401ks and specifically auto enrollment by companies in 401ks. So it's, it's leaving millennials, yes, with less disposable income out of their paychecks, um, but they're saving more. They actually have more built up in financial assets yeah, today than I yeah. did at the same age, yeah, for instance.
0: Ellen, you were doing you know global trout fishing you know, flight (laughs) trips, so you didn't save. Well, but Ellen,
4: this raises an interesting question here, especially as we look at the jobs report, and that is, you know, is somehow the jobs market profoundly different and sort of what people are doing with the money? And I'm just wondering, in other words, what are you looking for within the jobs uh, report that will indicate the disposable income that people have to spend on stuff to keep the recovery going?
3: Well, I think, so it's a great question. You know, we slice and dice Uh, wages to the minute detail and, uh, uh, you know, wage growth um, being accelerating for the better part of the last couple of years and most of that being driven by the middle to lower income or middle to lower paying sectors. Uh, whereas uh, higher paying had really stagnated, and if, if we just break it out, it's really the supervisory workers where wage growth had stagnated, and that's much of that demographic effect of you know as we age. Uh, Tom can tell you this. I can tell you this. Oh, at some you. point, your income tops out, right? Oh, I joke you. and yes. say I think my I think mine topped out a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. at the low end, when Keep you're climbing up. the ladder, <laughs> that's when that's when uh, when wages are growing the fastest, and so we've seen the Acceleration um, basically at the early stages of the ladder, but at the later stages, that's where it's topped out. Um, what we've seen though in the last couple of months, though, and so that that has been driving general discretionary spending in the economy, whereas we've really seen high end spending slow down, and it's been slowing down for more than a year now. Uh, what we've seen though in the last couple of months, though, has been disconcerting: is that now wage growth has slowed, the pace has slowed across the board. We wanna see that that's not a lasting trend, um, that that does turn upward again, because it's been important that those lower income groups are where the accelerating wage growth has been, because of course, from an, an impartial view from an economist, that's where your higher propensity to consume comes from, because they tend to spend more. Now, millennials are the, are the same, right? They're spending a high amount of their income, even though they're saving through 401ks. Um, but their spending differs than prior generations. For instance, and this would go back to the avocado toast, and maybe it's this social media effect. They're spending more of their after-tax income on food. Um, off you know out of the home consumption they're willing to spend more on organics Avocado toast. Other things are more aware of what goes in their bodies. They care what goes in their bodies, and they're willing to spend a much greater share of their income on that. That's what we're seeing in some of the in some of the trends by generation.
0: Eighteen-year Scotch doesn't doesn't fit into (laughs) that. It's probably not
5: the best diet. No, Tom. Mm, Ellen. To wrap things up, I want to bring the Fed into the conversation. There's a belief at the moment, or at least a signal coming from the bond market, that this Fed will keep rates low, but they won't be able to generate inflation. What's the Morgan Stanley view on that?
3: I think it's going to be very tough. So we've got some. We've got a few months here coming up. It's going to start with the January CPI. is going to surprise to the upside. And, and the, the year-over-year comps, comparisons to last year, extremely easy when financial service prices collapse. Then in March, apparel prices collapse. So very quickly here, we're going to get close to a 2% core PCE year-over-year rate. And the Fed understands that's transitory. It's easy comps and the like. Uh, and then it's going to struggle to get higher thereafter. And so if they're saying they want to see a significant and persistent you know, return and above the 2% inflation goal, it's unlikely they're going to see that this year.
5: Ellen, jobs guess for later for 35 minutes time. What are you looking for?
3: Oh, so boring. We're at 155, which is not far from consensus. I hate being close to consensus. (laughs) Um, The more interesting thing will be what do the benchmark revisions look like? And then again, going back to the wage growth, does it look like uh, it's continued to decelerate or is it starting to turn back upward again? That's what we'll be looking for.
5: Hey, Ellen, great to catch up with you. Ellen Zander there, Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Economist.
0: Right now, Elisa Martinuzzi is with us. She's with Bloomberg Opinion. She is encyclopedic on the fabric and culture of European banks. And, Elisa, with Credit Suisse, I don't want to look at the immediate details and the gossip and all that. I just want to look forward. What is the imperative for the cantons of Switzerland to keep UBS and, and Credit Suisse independent and fully Swiss. Are they even possibly merger candidates?
6: <laughs> Funny you should ask. I think, you know, um, there are some who argue that that, that would make, you know, that would make very good sense. um, you need two you know, two, two large wealth managers. Um, I think, you know, what um, mm-hmm. what this case has shown, though, is that um, you know there, there have been there have been some undertones of you know the management needing to be Swiss. Um, and today, the um, the chairman pointed to the deterioration of the reputation of the bank, particularly in Switzerland, as being something that ultimately led to the CEO change.
0: With, with this, at least, and I know Lisa Bramwitz has a lot of questions for Elise martin as well. Um, I, I, I look at this and I say to myself, is there an Anglo-Saxon unhappiness over shareholder performance? I look at the charts and they're unacceptable. Or is that not part of the Swiss dialect of what you do in banking? Do shareholders really matter to these people?
6: Yeah, no, as you rightly point out, you know, the shares are, you know, don't don't paint a pretty picture, um, you know, this, this restructuring, which is finally uh, bearing fruit, the restructuring that TM uh, undertook to tilt the bank more towards wealth management and back from, you know, volatile trading hasn't really resulted yet in the, the shareholder um, returns and performance that you would have been expecting by now. Um, that said, I think in the last six months, this, this drama and incessant um, headlines have not helped.
4: I believe this is the first time in 20 years that there has been a Swiss chief executive officer of Credit Suisse. Well said. I didn't and know yeah. there is a question, can Credit Suisse be considered a global bank? I mean, given the fact they want that Swiss culture, they have it, and they're trenching.
6: Um, The the sense at the moment is that the the successor, Thomas Godstein, will very much pursue and continue to embody the strategy that Tijan had put in place. Um, Bear in mind, he'd been part of that management team when the strategy was put together, and he's been running the Swiss Universal Unit, which is basically a mini Credit Suisse within Switzerland, exposed to investment banking and and, and, and wealth. So um, the sense at the moment is the strategy won't um, won't be, um, won't take a, a turn, um, you know, of course, on the investment banking side, they're a lot smaller than they were globally uh, before TM took over. But, you know, in wealth, they're clearly pushing, you know, quite aggressively in Asia and, and other emerging
4: markets. I'm just wondering that because there has been this feeling that particularly European banks uh, pressured with negative rates has made it even more challenging to expand internationally. And I'm wondering, is this going to sort of proceed an ongoing shift that way, both among Swiss banks and German banks and uh, even perhaps Japanese banks, I'm thinking, uh, with a similar kind of trend?
6: Well, if you look at um, the rest of Europe, if you look at the Eurozone, for example, there is a growing sense that Europe's banks um, need to sort of be stronger and bigger to compete on the global stage. And you you have that uh, being part of the reason that Europe is considering pushing ahead with deeper and, you know, banking union, completing the banking union project, um, which would would help potentially foster consolidation. So I think, you know, at, uh, at the moment, I, I would be hesitant to jump to the conclusion that we'll see a yeah. you know, greater retrenchment.
0: Never boring. At least Martin Martinuzzi, thank you so much. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion on so much of continental and United Kingdom banking, and I'm sure uh, there will be important essays out on this.
5: For the White House's view on the jobs report now, I'm really pleased to say we're joined on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, great to see you. Great week for the administration as well. Stellar job numbers. Big debate around this table on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio as to whether we have found full employment yet in the United States of America. What's your take, Larry?
7: Yeah, it's a good point. Look, um, I'm focusing on the employment to population ratio which a lot of labor economists, uh, Ed Lazier and others say is the best measure. when you look at that, Jonathan, we went up two-tenths of a percent in today's report for January. So A, that's good. But B, we're at 61.2%. The peak uh, back in 2006 was over 63%. What that means in terms of our growing population is that there could be as many as 6 million workers who are still out there that may have dropped out of the labor force. You know, we've had. Labor force increase of three and a half million. Uh, prior administration lost jobs, but the point is, people see the better job opportunities. They see retraining and reskilling opportunities. They're coming out of the woodwork, and the employment ratio suggests, if we keep marching up towards the prior peak, as I believe they will, and today's blowout numbers suggest, you could have as many as six million more workers uh, in this country ready to come back to work
5: and join the labor rolls. So Larry, this is not necessarily a about- Thing. I'm just wondering, just in terms of your assessment, do you think the administration and many other people on Wall Street as well have underestimated the amount of work still left to do to get back to that peak? The amount of workers, you mean, Jonathan? Yeah, to get people back to work again, to get to that position where unemployment is low enough to get wages moving in a bigger way. Well, look, uh,
7: the progression is good, the patterns are good, may I also uh, suggest In yesterday's uh productivity report, the last four quarters productivity output per hour has climbed all the way back to one point eight percent. And so your uh hours worked or employment growth is uh well over one percent. So you're looking at the potential for three percent GDP, which I think you know contradicts a lot of these secular stagnation scenarios that we reject. All I'll say is what President Trump has done, you heard it in the State of the Union. And you heard it in Davos. He's restructured the economy. He's rebuilt it so that we have new incentives for people to work, save, and invest. Uh, That's what a market-oriented economy should be doing. Tax rates come down, sweeping deregulation, energy independence, and new trade deals that will open up uh, terrific export markets. I want to make a point on the export side, Jonathan, because I don't want to overlook that. President Xi and uh, Trump, spoke by phone last evening very constructive conversation uh, president Trump believes that uh, China can handle the virus we're helping them with all kinds of experts and so forth but again China cutting their tariffs by 50 percent is a great sign and finally on the export story not only the tariff reductions but President Xi apparently said may be a little slower to purchase American exports, but it will get done uh, by the end of the year and next year. They're especially interested in uh, medical supplies, pharma stuff, and agriculture. So, you know, the export boom that we are expecting from these strong new trade deals, let's include USMCA
5: in that, that's going to really help the economy and wages as well. So, Larry, let's unpack some of that because you mentioned some important things. Has China consulted with the United States then? Have they requested some exceptions to that purchase agreement that you've made just a month ago? Not
7: formally. I mean, they're consulting because the two leaders have talked about it and staff level discussions. Uh, Nothing formal. The point is that obviously they're in a shut-in regarding their industrial plants in a number of cities and so forth. But President Xi apparently reassured President Trump in this phone call that while there might be some delays... In the purchase of American exports, the job, the markers of 200 billion over the next couple of years will, in fact, be
5: met. To be clear, though, Larry, do you think they can meet the targets for this year? Never mind over the two years. I'm just wondering this year whether we're setting ourselves up for failure here on the Chinese side, maybe as well as the U.S. side, because as you can see, large chunks of that economy is shut down. How on earth are they going to meet those targets anytime soon?
7: Well, look, we're not setting ourselves up for failure. We're we're setting ourselves up for a mild delay. Look, I'm not a medical expert, Okay, A lot of people think this virus is going to run five or six months. Some people are saying that the rate of increase, the rate of its spreading has already slowed down. The World Health Organization apparently disagrees. So I'll stay with the official view that it's not yet slowing down. Having said all that, uh, the issue here is not an economic issue. It's not a trade policy issue. It's obviously a public health issue. We are doing what we can, yeah. along with the uh, WHO. We've sent our best CDC uh, experts over there. Secretary Azar is monitoring this thing uh, all day long, every day, twenty-four-seven. So that, that's really a you know separate issue. There is no failure because the export uh, schedules and the chinese purchase schedules will continue literally as soon as physically possible
5: so larry as you know a public health issue can of course become an economic problem and i won't expect you to talk to the medical side of things neither of us are medical professionals but i would like to talk to you about the diplomatic side of things between the u s and china right now this is a quote from the chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman she said this week the u s government hasn't provided any substantial assistance to us but it was the first to evacuate personnel from its consulate in wuhan the first to suggest partial withdrawal of its embassy staff and the first to impose a travel ban on the travelers. Now on that travel ban, that same foreign ministry spokeswoman has followed up today in the last 24 hours. We deplore and oppose those countries who went against WHO's professional recommendations. Is there any tension there whatsoever between the U.S. and China right now, Larry? No. i say no
7: emphatically. And I, I don't know who this spokesperson is. I don't know anything about that. What I want to say is from day one, when this thing broke, and I was in this room interviewing uh, various media TV outlets, the United States has offered the best health care, public health care experts we have. And we have the best public health system in the world. And we have been working with the World Health Organization. We offered it several times. I guess China has finally accepted that offer. President Trump has told us, Privately in the Oval, and I think publicly he has said this. Yep. Uh, we want to be compassionate. We are engaging with China. U.S. China relations had never been better following the conclusion of the phase one trade deal. We were not the first countries, by the way, to issue a travel ban. Uh, Russia was ahead of us, and some other countries were ahead of us. I don't know where this spokesperson got what he or she got, but it's not true. And we have taken steps. As much as we can do. They had to let us in the country, and I guess now that has been solved with the uh, WHO. This is not about jobs. This is not about trade, companies, whatever. This is about compassion and good public health care. And we have done whatever we have offered, whatever we can offer. So I totally disagree. And that is not, let me emphasize, that was not the thrust of the uh, POTUS she call last night. I got the printouts, the readouts of that call. That was a constructive, cooperative, very friendly call where President Xi was thanking us for our help on the public health care front and assured us that phase one was going to go uh, through. And as I said before, assured us that if there are any delays because of the virus, uh, the
5: uh, Chinese purchases of U.S. exports would be picked up later on. Larry, her words, not mine. I hear loud and clear, and I can see you're very fired up on this, and quite rightly so. Yeah, I
7: mean, I don't know. You know, it's like no, no good deed goes undone or something. I mean, that, that's just, just utterly
5: not true. I get it. I'm going to ask you a sensitive question, though. Do you trust the data coming from China regarding the coronavirus?
7: Oh, I don't know. Uh, I honestly can't answer that. Um, I, I've seen a lot of speculation in the paper. It's not my job. It's not my role. But Larry, isn't that uh, a problem speculate? that you don't know that you can't emphatically say that you do? Well, look. I will say this. Uh, Secretary Azar, pretty smart fellow, been in this uh, business a long time. He has said, and I, I believe Secretary Pompeo, but I know that Alex Azar has said this, that China has shown more transparency. During this coronavirus crisis, than we've seen in similar problems in the past. That's Secretary Azar's statement.
5: That's about as far as I can go. Let's talk about a State of the Union and next steps. The President talking about one priority is paramount reversing decades of calamitous trade policies. You and I talked the other week in Davos. I caught up with the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross as well. We had some great conversations about Europe and next steps. Larry, what are the next steps? What's the timeline to deal with the issue? That is Europe, at least from the administration side of things, in the coming months. What are you looking for? Uh, Very good talks yesterday between Ambassador Lighthizer
7: and uh, Phil Hogan, who's the new EU Trade Commissioner. Hogan's a smart guy. He was formerly the Agriculture Commissioner. Uh, I met with him after uh, Bob Lighthizer met with him. The bilat we had in Davos with uh, EU uh, President, the new President von der Leyen, was very constructive she's got a lot of energy wants to restart the talks and move things along President Trump uh, said he'd be delighted to do so. I think there's a lot of new urgency into those talks. I'm not going to go into detail. That's uh, Lighthizer's uh, uh, domain. I will just say that there have been some new proposals put on the table, which could amount to some very positive developments. I'm not here to do details. I'm not here to do timing. That's up to our trade ambassador. Larry, I but thought I you were here say for the details. The talks been started. I, I thought, monthly I beg- that's what
5: this conversation was about, that you give me the details. Well, you know, Jonathan, you're an awful
7: good man, and you've been great to me. I can tell you what I can tell you, and then we have to go
5: dot, 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 dot to finish the sentence. I understand that. Let's talk about one final (laughs) issue, though, and it's on Europe. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said the Section 232 investigation had completed last year, the end of last year, as you know, and that they determined that it was a national security risk And that was the imports of European autos into the United States. And then he said to me that the president decided that it is a risk, that we've decided as an administration that it is a risk, but we're going to negotiate. Why are we negotiating around national security risks? It's either a national security risk or it's not, isn't it?
7: Well, no, I don't think it's quite that straightforward. Look, the trade principles group submitted uh, our report to the president. And he has the authority under Section 232 to take whatever actions that he deems necessary. He has not taken any actions thus far. And I think that whole discussion is on hold for the moment while we work through a good faith effort uh, with respect to the possibility of an EU trade deal. And as I said, those talks are heating up. We had good meeting with the new EU president. Uh, Their trade guy, Hogan, was here and had good talks with Lighthizer uh, yesterday. So that's really front and center. I think, um, you know, we'd like to make a good deal with the European Union. I don't want to speculate on anything right now, except there's a new energy to those
5: talks. Larry, and we hope that energy... Transpires, materializes into a positive outcome. Larry Kudlow, always great to see you, to get your thoughts, especially after the payrolls report. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director, joining us from Washington, D.C.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.